Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Bo. Uh, I am Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call, and we are delighted that you could join us today. Uh, as you know, author-in-the-room calls are designed to help translate new knowledge, what's published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can, can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author-in-the-room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m., with the next call being September 15th. The article for that call will be the role of professionalism and self-regulation in detection of impaired or incompetent physicians. Please join us. It stands to be a very interesting conversation. Many organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Patricia Good, a first author of the article Incontinence in Older Women, published in June of 2010 in JAMA. Dr. Good is the Gwen Horder Professor of Geriatric Medicine at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and the Medical Director of UAB's Incontinence Clinic. She is also the Associate Director for Clinical Programs of the Veterans Birmingham Atlanta Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center. Dr. Good's research focuses on improving the functional status and quality of life of older adults, especially in the areas of urinary and fecal incontinence. Her research, funded by the National Institutes of Health and the Veterans Administration Office of Research and Development, has demonstrated the effectiveness of behavioral therapy for treatment of incontinence in men and women. She received the National Association for Incontinence uh, Care Champion Award in 2008. Welcome, Dr. Good. Thank you very much. As the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Good's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on her article. Uh, the goal of author in the room is for you to hear directly from the author about her findings that can improve patient care. Together, Dr. Good and I will help work to help you translate this research into practice to improve the care of your patients. Here's how the R will proceed. Dr. Good will spend about 10 or 15 minutes summarizing her findings, and then we will move ahead to questions. I want to stress how valuable your participation is in these calls. This is a great form in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from Dr. Good and to com contemplate with peers the significance of these findings and the steps that we might take towards improving care. There are approximately 80 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are there available as well. And now let's get started and go to Dr. Good, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Good. Okay, my first thing is a disclosure. I do have funding from Pfizer. I'm an investigator on a multi-site study. Uh, in our article, uh, we tried to convey using a case study of Mrs. F. And I do want to say that Mrs. F. was a real person. I've had people think that we made her up. You no, know, she was real and she was really interviewed and her physicians were interviewed that participated in her care. So I think that makes this series of evidence to action care of the aging patient really more real. Uh, I want to put three points forward. One is that incontinence is very common. It has huge impact on quality of life and that it's very treatable. Uh, first, how common is it? It's a prevalence of one in three older women. 
that makes it more common than diabetes and a lot of other disorders that we really work hard to uncover. And incontinence is even harder to uncover because people don't voluntarily report it. If you ask them, they'll definitely tell you and they'll be pleased that you asked. But if you don't put it in your review of systems, you're likely not to find out that the patient's incontinent. So only about one in three women who have incontinence actually tell their physician when you survey patients with incontinence. So if more of us put it in our review of systems, I think we'd be much better off. A lot of patients think it's just a normal part of aging, and there are changes in the aging body that contribute to incontinence, but it's never a normal part of aging, and it's always very treatable. Uh, and a lot of patients don't realize that there's very effective treatments, and they don't all involve surgery, that there's a lot of conservative treatments that work really well, which is one of the points we focused on in our article. One thing that I hear from physicians is if a patient tells them, oh, they just leak every once in a while and it's not a big deal, that they think, okay, I don't need to do anything about it. And that may be so if the patient doesn't want to, but the patient, I think, needs to be informed that infrequent incontinence is a risk factor for more frequent incontinence and that there has been a randomized controlled trial demonstrating that if you do intervene with women who have relatively infrequent, like less than once a month incontinence, that you can stabilize them where they are and prevent progression and sometimes even recover their continence. I think it's important for them to know that. And the treatment that was studied was using pelvic floor muscle exercises and education. Uh, next, I'm going to move on to urinary incontinence impacting on quality of life. Uh, there's a quote in our article from uh, uh, the urogynecologist saying, incontinence doesn't kill you, it just takes away your life. And that was from a patient. Uh, it has really huge impact on quality of life. It can lead to social isolation, uh, falls, sliding in urine, uh, fractures as a result, and admission to long-term care facilities, both from caregiver burden and then from fractures and other problems. And I think it leads to frailty as one path into frailty because older patients who have an accident at their bridge club, they may not want to go back again. They'll be mortified. And so gradually they do less and less and they get more out of shape. And I do think it's a contributor to frailty in many cases. I do want to say that incontinence can be treated very well in a primary care practice. Uh, a basic evaluation of first-line treatments can be done by any primary care provider. Uh, nurse practitioners do a particularly wonderful job of this, but physicians can do it as well and, and PAs as well. Uh, the basic evaluation is a history, uh, trying to determine the type of incontinence. Um, basically urgency versus stress incontinence, and almost half of older women who have incontinence have a mixture of both urge and stress. So with stress incontinence, you leak when you cough or sneeze or bend or pick up your grandchild. And with urge incontinence, you got to go, you got to go, and you don't make it. And you can ask them just like that, just in regular terms. And if they endorse one or the other, you know which kind of incontinence they have. And if they endorse both, they have mixed incontinence. There are several other types of incontinence, but those are the most common types you'll see in patients who uh, are not demented. But I will talk about demented patients as well in a little bit. There's some controversy about physical exam. Most people in the incontinence field are urogynecologists or urologists. I happen to be an internist. Uh, and think definitely should do a physical exam. But in a really busy primary care practice, uh, I think you can do first-line measures without a physical exam, which sounds really shocking. But there was one study that was very well done comparing uh, just asking the patient using a validated instrument whether they had stress or urge incontinence against a whole uh, examination by a urogynecologist or urologist using uh, physical exam and urodynamic studies. 
and they were fairly comparable. It was like 70% accurate to just use the, the tool. So I think a history is the most important part of the evaluation. You want to find out how severe the incontinence is, how often they, it happens, whether they need pads or diapers, and the impact of it on their life. And then what would be their goals of treatment once you outline what the treatments are, which I'll get into in a minute. Every patient that has incontinence as a chief complaint or one of their complaints should have a urinalysis because you want to rule out infection and you certainly want to rule out hematuria. We wouldn't want to miss any bladder cancers. There's a little more controversy in post-void residual volume. This is having your patient urinate and then you measure either with ultrasound or with a bladder catheter, ultrasound being much more popular amongst the patients. Um, how much urine is left in their bladder after they urinate and with a normal urge to void. And in women, it's probably not as important to get that unless they have a neurologic disorder or diabetes. In men, that's very important to get uh, because they can have a lot of obstruction from prostate enlargement. Uh, there's actually a guideline from the American Medical Directors Association for nursing home patients, and they do recommend that the post-void residual urine uh, only be measured in women with neurologic conditions and that it's not necessary in women who don't have them or diabetes since neurologic conditions are commonly accompanying that. Uh, diagnosing incontinence, uh, the first thing, once you decide what type it is, urge versus stress, particularly if it has an urge component, you usually think about contributing factors to the incontinence. Uh, there's a table in the, in the article that you can look at, which I'm certainly not expecting you to look at now, uh, with a list of factors that should be treated first. Uh, and the list includes UTI. Uh, if a patient has a UTI, it should be treated. And if they have a worsening of incontinence, that makes you think more that it might be a UTI. Or if they have memory impairment and their incontinence just suddenly worsens and they don't complain of dysuria, they may well have a UTI. Uh, and they should be treated to see if they respond. However, if they don't respond to treatment and their incontinence is no different, they really should be labeled with asymptomatic bacteria because it's important not to treat asymptomatic bacteria because if you do, you get more resistant organisms and you can even cause problems like C. difficile diarrhea. So we try to avoid treating asymptomatic bacteria, but if the patient has incontinence, it may be a symptom of the, bacteri of the bacteria. And then other causes, uh, constipation, and you think, oh, Dr. Good, Constipation, that's the wrong system. We're not talking about fecal incontinence today. But constipation actually is associated with urinary incontinence, and there's various proposed mechanisms. Uh, but I do know in my practice that if I help a patient manage her constipation or his constipation, their urinary incontinence improves. Another common thing I see is out-of-control diabetes uh, causes polyuria, and it contributes to incontinence. Mobility impairment, sometimes a physical therapy consult is helpful to a patient to get to the bathroom a little more reliably. Uh, obesity uh, has been shown if, if women lose weight that their incontinence improves, both a modest weight loss of about 15 pounds and also morbid obesity patients. We did some work here at UAB showing that if those patients have a gastric bypass surgery and lose a good bit of weight that their incontinence drastically improves. And then Lastly, there's other measures that are in the article, other reversible or contributing causes, but caffeine is the one I really want to stress. Caffeine is rampant in our society, and there's nothing evil about it, but if you have overactive bladder, it makes your bladder worse. And if you abstain from caffeine by gradually tapering off, your incontinence generally gets better. There was a study even showing that stress incontinence improves uh, by tapering off of caffeine. 
and even a decrease in caffeine was associated with an improvement in continence. So if people want to wean themselves down to one cup of coffee, they might be able to manage that way depending on how sensitive they are to the uh, caffeine. So let's talk about treatments. The first-line treatment in older women really should be behavioral therapy because it doesn't have the side effects of medication. It doesn't uh, have the adverse impact of medications, not that medications are not good in many cases, uh, such as our patient in the in the, our article, but uh, first-line treatment should be behavioral therapy. And you can teach pelvic floor muscle exercises several ways. One, you could have a self-help sheet. There's many of them on the Internet. The American Geriatric Society has a good teaching tool, and the National Association for Continents has one, and those links are in the electronic uh, support to our article on the JAMA website, links to those teaching tools. And in our, we did a randomized controlled trial, uh, one in urge incontinence and one in women with predominantly stress incontinence. And just using a self-help booklet, they had about a 50% decrease in accidents with stress incontinence and about a 40% decrease in accidents in urge incontinence. So it's a significant improvement. Patients do do better, though, if you actually teach them the exercises. Usually I give them a verbal explanation. And the best way I know to teach a pelvic floor muscle contraction is to tell people, pretend you're in the elevator, you're standing there, and you feel you're about to pass flatus. And I don't say flatus to the patients, of course. I just say gas. And I say squeeze those muscles that you would squeeze in order to hold that gas in and not embarrass yourself. Almost everybody can do that correctly, and that is a kegel squeeze or a pelvic floor muscle exercise. And then you can take it from there. It's also very helpful to teach them during physical exam. When you're doing your pelvic exam, just with your two fingers in their vagina, you ask them to squeeze. And what you're trying to get them to do is to lift your fingers with their pubococcygeus muscle, which is very easy to feel, and not hold their breath and not use all these other accessory muscles like uh, raising their buttocks off the table or moving their legs. And it takes about an extra one minute in a pelvic exam to teach them pelvic floor muscle exercises in most cases. So I really do recommend that. Then a lot of studies have just shown uh, treatment for behavioral therapy with only pelvic floor muscle exercises. And I think the most important thing is to apply using those muscles to help people stay dry. So the first strategy I'm going to talk about is controlling stress incontinence. And it's amazing that people don't think about this. It's so simple. If you're about to sneeze, right before you sneeze, if you'll squeeze your pelvic floor muscles and hold them really tight, when you get to that chew part, you'll be holding the urine in your bladder rather than having it spurt out. Similarly, if you're going to pick up your grandchild, same thing. Squeeze your pelvic floor muscles and hold them tight right as you pick up the baby, and then you may not leak, especially if you've gotten your muscles stronger. So we tell them, squeeze before you sneeze. That's their, one of their new mottos. Now, urgency control is not quite as intuitive, and it's a little more difficult to teach to people. But for urgency, what you need to do is sit still, and they think right away, oh, Dr. Good, when i got to go, i got to go. I'm not going to sit still. But you talk to them, you know, what they're doing is not working. Just give this a try at home in a safe environment with a pad on with a little small urge and see if you can suppress it. So you sit still and you contract your pelvic floor muscles. You just squeeze them up, squeeze them a little tighter, a little tighter. And in about 10 seconds, the urge completely goes away. And then you can get up and walk to the bathroom. And usually you don't have an accident on the way there. And you have to develop a certain level of skill and confidence with this. So it's important that they... Uh, practice it, and that you bring them back for a visit in two or three weeks after you teach it to them to see how they're doing with it. Because if they try it one time and it didn't work the first time, they may get discouraged. But with practice, they can make this work. It really does work well. In our randomized controlled trials uh, for 
treatment of urinary incontinence using pelvic floor muscle exercises and bladder control strategies. But we had an 81% reduction in incontinence in women with urge-predominant incontinence and about a 70-something percent reduction in women with stress. And the range of articles in the literature is anywhere from 54 to 81% reduction in incontinence and a definite improvement in quality of life. So it's, it's well worth doing. Uh, we also talk about what to do beyond behavioral treatment. Behavioral treatment alone works for a lot of patients, but it doesn't work sufficiently well for everybody. So the next step, and we have an algorithm in the article that you can follow down and figure out what to add next. And I say add because they don't need to stop their behavioral therapy. They need to continue it. So to behavioral therapy, you could add for urgent continence anti-muscarinic medications, and there's about five or six of those. Uh, there's no articles really comparing them head-to-head uh, -head other than the short-acting versus the long-acting form of the, of the same drug, and the long-acting form generally is more effective than the short-acting drug. Uh, if that's not successful, then there's treatments, and people may want to ask about this, like sacral neuromodulation, which is an implanted device, Botox injections in the bladder, and posterior uh, percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation, which is an in-office series of treatments. For stress incontinence, if behavior is not enough, and you can add a pessary, a device that fits in the vagina, and most gynecologists can fit a pessary, uh, and they can work extremely well uh, for stress incontinence. And if that's not successful or if a woman chooses not to try that, they can have surgery, and the surgeries are very successful. Uh, they don't usually totally eliminate incontinence, but they make it a whole lot better, and women are highly satisfied uh, with their improvements. So those are my introductory thoughts and my summary of my article, our article. I had two co-authors. Uh, three co-authors, uh, Dr. Catherine Bergio, Dr. Holly Richter, and Dr. Elaine Markland. Well, great. Thank you, Dr. Good, and uh, thank you for both your good work on what I think is a very important and com a common topic and your clear presentation to, to help those of us in, in practice uh, begin to implement changes in practice. And before we go to callers, um, I guess what I'd like to do is, is see if you have any one or two pearls for, for those of us in the clinical practice where we may actually be trying to deal with this in a 10 or at most 15-minute office visit, often in an older woman who's got multiple other medical issues. Um, any suggestions on how we can maybe begin to change our practice environments to make us able to do some of the things that you've described? Now, what I... I'm not in primary care practice anymore because I'm all doing research and continence clinics. But when I was in primary care practice, which was about five years ago, uh, I would work with my patients in the review of systems. I would find out they had incontinence, and then I would schedule an appointment to come back and deal with it so that I would have 15 whole minutes to deal with the continence problem. And I would teach them pelvic floor muscle exercises and bladder control strategies, and then, then then see them back in two or three weeks to see how that was going so I could reinforce it and problem solve with them. And then I'd see them back again for another visit uh, for the same reason. And then we could go from there and decide if we needed to add other treatments. And in that first 15-minute visit, I outlined all the different types of treatments that are available. Uh, so if they chose not to do behavioral therapy and they would rather have, say, for instance, surgery for their stress incontinence, then I would uh, steer them in that direction. Wonderful. Well, I, I think that's very helpful in terms of, you know, scheduling a dedicated visit, really, both primarily for education and training rather than diagnosis is what I'm hearing. And the other thing I like is that follow-up visit that's really about supporting behavior change because what I'm, what I'm understanding from your article is that everyone 
should, if possible, work on the behavioral change aspects of it. And we know from the literature that that happens best when we're able to support that self-management change. So that's, that's right. very helpful. And it's been shown that medications are more effective in combination with the behavioral therapy program. So regardless of whether we're eventually going down a surgical or a pharmacologic path, everybody needs education and some support in behavior change. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Good, let's go ahead and turn to questions from our callers. Um, and for our callers, questions can include anything from the implications to the research, how to improve them, or how to apply them in practice. And we would also welcome uh, examples and lessons learned from uh, your own work in incontinence or things that you've tried to do or have worked in your health system. So, Bo, let's now go ahead and open the lines for our callers. Thank you, Dr. Shu. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you do have any questions or comments, simply press star 1. Just a quick reminder, if you are joining us today using a speakerphone, please make sure that your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, star 1, please, for any questions, and we'll pause for just a moment. Great. Thank you. Uh, any callers in the queue at this time, Bo? Not at this time, Dr. Shu. Well, great. Well, you know, I'll go ahead and get rolling with, with the, the, the first question. Um, and I think one of my challenges very often is in dealing with patients that have some cognitive impairment. Um, we just really agreed that starting with some behavior change is an important first step. Um, what do you do around that in patients that may have minor or moderate cognitive impairment? And any tricks on how to help those patients, Dr. Good? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and they are a special group, and we do need to recognize cognitive impairment. Sometimes if behavioral therapy is not working, that's when we first figure out the patient may have some cognitive impairment. But in patients that are diagnosed and you know have cognitive impairment, or it turns out that way once you try to treat them with behavioral therapy, you just switch your behavioral therapy. Caffeine reduction still works, particularly if they have a caregiver. They can be gradually tapered off caffeine with improvement in their bladder function. The other behavioral measure that works really well in patients with dementia is timed voiding. And there was some elegant work by Joe Auslander in nursing home patients who were fairly cognitively impaired, uh, seeing if prompted voiding would work. And it did, and you could separate who it would work for in a three-day trial of it. So let me explain the details of prompted voiding, and this will be short. Uh, basically, if you go up to your patient uh, and you go up and you say, Mom, you need to go to the bathroom, she's going to say, nope, and then you're sort of stuck. A better approach is to say, Mom, it's time to go to the bathroom. You remember Dr. Good said you had to keep that bladder healthy, and it's time to go. And then if she goes, that's fine. If she doesn't, come back in five minutes and say, Mom, it's time to go to the bathroom, and she'll forget she saw you the first time, and she'll go cheerfully the second time, hopefully. And then if it doesn't work out and you can't get the woman to cooperate with you, then you'll know that she's not a good candidate for prompted voiding. And then you're more into the containment mode where people uh, need really need pull-ups. Sometimes a cautious trial of uh, a medication can help patients with dementia and their incontinence. But you really have to be careful because if you think about somebody on a cholinergic medication like galantamine uh, and then putting them on an anticholinergic medication like one of the overactive bladder drugs, uh, there's a problem with the two medications doing the opposite thing, which can make somebody more confused. Great. Well, thank you for that nice review. Um, really, of at least the first steps in helping our patients 
with cognitive impairment. Um, I, I'd like to invite callers to, to call in. We've got a lot of lines open today, and I'm sure a lot of you work in the field of incontinence or at least uh, care for a number of women or elderly women who may have this condition. So please do call in with your questions or just your observations of things that have worked in, in your world. Uh, Bo, do we have any callers at this time? Yes, Dr. Shu, just a reminder to our audience, star one for questions. We do have two questions in queue right now. We'll take our first question from Connie Davis in private practice. Hi, David. Um, hey, Connie. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, great. Hi, Dr. Good. I'm, I'm a geriatric nurse practitioner, and I just want to thank you for such a well-written article. I'm very happy to be using this um, in the fall when I'll be teaching nurse practitioner students. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I have just two things I wanted to ask more about. Um, I've seen many different Kegel routines written out for, you know, quick and slow and how often and how many repetitions, and I was wondering if you had any advice for us about um, if there's any difference in success rates for any of those. And just in a couple of other um, comments, if you wouldn't mind commenting on, the long-term success of, uh, of uh, surgery, especially um, more the procedures people would refer to as bladder um, lifting, and then uh, maybe I'll share one experience I had with uh, sacral neuromodulation, but if you have any comments on those, I'd be very appreciative. Okay, the first one was the pelvic floor muscle exercise regimen. Uh, Unfortunately, there's no evidence-based guidelines for us. Uh, nobody's really compared one type of program against another, although there are some uh, clinical series and even controlled trials showing that a high-intensity pelvic floor muscle extra pro exercise program uh, is more effective for stress incontinence in young women than a low-intensity. And I don't have exactly the details in my brain right now about the difference in, the exact difference in those uh, articles. They were written by Kari, K-A-R-I, Bo, B-O, so you could uh, find her pretty easily on Google. But uh, what we use, and which has worked well in our trials, has just been to tell the patient to squeeze for two seconds, relax for two seconds, and work up to doing that 15 times in a row. And then once that gets easy, we want to challenge the muscle, so then we have them go up by one second a week on both the squeezing and relaxation uh, until they get to 10 seconds. And then once they get where they can do a 10-second squeeze, a 10-second relaxation, 15 in a row, then they can drop back to just once a day. Before that, we have them do it three times a day. Uh, and uh, maintenance is 10 squeezes, 10 relaxations, 10 times in a row, once a day, forever and ever. Because if you don't use your muscles, they will get weaker and patients will slowly worsen over time. So the maintenance is very important, although there's very little evidence about long-term durability of behavioral treatments. There's just a few studies on that, and we need more work on that. Did that answer that question? Oh, thank you. That's excellent. Okay. Oh, I left out one thing. We have patients do the exercises lying, sitting, and standing if they're able. So if they're doing them three times a day, once lying, once sitting, and once standing, because you need to be able to feel your muscles and know what they feel like so that if you have a sudden urge or a sudden sneeze, you can squeeze them right then. So we do that. Uh, the second one was long-term success of surgery. The long-term success of surgery is pretty good. It depends on your definition of success, which really, really varies between articles. Uh, in the articles that use a very strict definition, including like a one-week bladder diary or a three-day bladder diary, and the patient self-reported any leakage in the last month, even short-term success rates are like 40% for people being completely dry, but they're more like 90% for people being totally satisfied. And the long-term success rates really don't diminish that much. We don't have a lot of long-term data right now on the TVT and the TOT, the uh, 
synthetic sling operations are the most commonly done right now for uh, stress incontinence, but that data is coming and there are studies ongoing. Wonderful. Thank you. And, and Connie, you mentioned that you had a comment you wanted to offer about uh, nerve stimulation, I believe. Yeah, I just I also wonder if Dr. Goods had any experience with this. I um, did have a woman that um, did decide to go for um, the sacral neuromodulation. She had the um, little attachment and everything. And she also had um, pretty bad osteoporosis with a long history of uh, different vertebral fractures. And it really exacerbated her um, osteoporotic pain. She had a horrible time and ended up having the device removed within a couple of weeks. She couldn't stand even the, the lowest dose of the stimulation. And I didn't know if you'd ever seen anything like that before. I have not. I would have to look and see if it's been reported. I would think it has been, but uh, normally what they do is they implant the leads and then they hook you up to a temporary stimulator and try on every different setting. So you would hope they would find that out before they implanted the permanent stimulator. Yeah, I believe this was the temporary stimulator. That's my error. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. So then she didn't lose as much as if she'd had the permanent stimulator put in, but I'm sure she was horribly disappointed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most of the patients I send for uh, sacral neuromodulation do very well and are very pleased with the results, but not everybody, but a lot of them are. Wonderful. Hey, Connie, thank you for calling. Before you go, I actually have a question for the two of you that I just can't resist asking. Uh, Dr. Good, earlier in your summary, you, you made a comment that uh, nurse practitioners are particularly effective in um, assessing and treating this condition. And, and, Connie, you mentioned you're a nurse practitioner. I, I'd invite either of you to comment on, um, you know, I guess, Dr. Good, that particular comment, if you'd Care to expound a little bit on uh, either your observations or why you say that, and then invite Connie to respond in kind. Well, I'm very biased because I was a nurse before I went to medical school. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to put forth that disclaimer first. But I, there was a study showing that nurse practitioners did better with conditions that need patient education, like getting people to adhere to their antihypertensive medications or diabetic regimens. Uh-huh. Uh, I have not seen anything like that in continents, but I do know that nurse practitioners uh, do a wonderful job in uh, conservative care of urinary and fecal incontinence. Great. Thank you, Dr. Good. Connie, do you care to comment? Well, I, I, um, I guess part of it is that generally nurse practitioners are allowed a slightly longer visit time with patients, so I think that is uh, um, helpful. And I guess also nurses from their background are very involved in elimination in a variety of ways and have <laughs> a lot. And so they generally have a, a maybe a wider frame and an intimacy with the whole process that can be helpful in giving people tips and sharing um, information from other people like them, which tends to be very helpful when providing education or tips in self-management. Great, Connie. Th- thank you for your comments. And, and, and the real reason I wanted to go there, I think, is, is to highlight um, that this is not necessarily uh, only the purview of physicians to do this work, uh, and especially I think some of the training and behavioral work often can be done by other members of the care team uh, very, very effectively. Yeah, so. there's even physical therapists that are starting to specialize in continence care and treat patients, teaching them pelvic floor muscle exercises and bladder control strategies. Great. All right. Well, Connie, thank you so much for calling for your question, and uh, let's go back to Bo now and uh, see who else we have in the queue at this time. Dr. Shute, we have one more question in queue. We'll take that now from Allison Patterson of Vancouver Island Health Authority. Hello. Go, go ahead, Allison. Okay. Actually, uh, my name is Karen. I'm a nurse at the Geriatric Patient Clinic in Victoria. And I just had a question around the colonesterase inhibitors. 
um, might may be precipitating incontinence. And I just wondered if you had, we, we start quite a few people on cholinesterase inhibitors, and I'm not sure that we're actually doing, at least I know for my own self, we're not, I'm not necessarily asking them again after they've started whether or not they have now developed any incontinence issues. Do you have any tips for us as far as um, how to work with that if they do develop incontinence? Um, but but yet they need the um, the colonic. yeah. That's a difficult issue, and and you you put the problem well because if somebody goes on a cholinesterase inhibitor, it's been well described in the literature on a case series basis that it can precipitate incontinence, and the incontinence goes away if the cholinesterase inhibitor is stopped. However, if you want to continue the cholinesterase inhibitor, then you can start behavioral therapy along with it and see if you can control the, continence, the incontinence that way. But it, your point about following up with patients when you put them on the medication to see if they're having problems, people who have some degree of incontinence to start with are predisposed to developing an cholinesterase inhibitors, although there's certainly no science to back that up. It's just been my experience. But I think your I think your point, Allison, is well made that we should uh perhaps be making part of making those questions about worsening or new onset incontinence part of our follow up after we start those drugs. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And any other follow up questions, Allison? No, I don't think so. Thank Great. You. All right. Well thank you for checking in. Um any more callers in the queue at this time, Bo? Questions. We'll take our next question now from Ingrid Bostis, excuse me, Bostis of Metro West Medical Center. Great, thank you. Go ahead, Ingrid. Hi, I'm I'm Ingrid. I'm a physical therapist uh, working in the area of incontinence, and I had a question for Dr. Good. We've recently seen someone who was treated with Botox, um, partly for interstitial cystitis, but also for incontinence, and landed up, as your article mentioned, with a bit of. Um, Sorry, my brain just went. Um, with some retention, and she actually had to be hospitalized for retention. I just wondered how common this is or how effective Botox is in treatment, uh, just because we're not seeing that much, and the bit that we have seen has not been very positive so far. Uh, yeah, Botox uh, can be effective, but it has almost a 50% rate of urinary retention, not complete retention, but an increased uh, post-void residual. And we actually were involved in a multi-site study that had to be stopped because of the high retention rate. Uh, it's still approved for that indication. And no, it's not approved for that indication. It's still being studied because we do think it has some promise. So there will be more literature to guide us in the future. But that's not an uncommon complication. But it is effective in a lot of patients. There were some patients in our trial that even though they were holding 200 cc's in their bladder at the end of voiding, they still had considerable relief from their urgency and their incontinence, and they had to go to the bathroom a little more often because of their incomplete emptying, but they were still overall pleased with their condition. Uh, they did have a few more uh, urinary tract infections uh, in the Botox group than in the control, uh, and uh, you can look for some more literature in the future that will really help you because there are ongoing trials. So Ingrid's experience is not at all uncommon. Correct. That patients, It's uncommon they have to be hospitalized. In our center, before somebody has Botox, they're taught intermittent self-catheterization, and they're counseled that they might have urinary retention, and they have to be able to catheterize themselves or have a family member or whoever uh, do that before that they have the Botox procedure. 
So, so Dr. Good, in the patients who have a good response to Botox, um, does the treatment need repeated, and if so, how often? It varies wildly in patients, and I think as we get more data in our clinical trials, we'll have a better idea. Uh, sometimes it has to be repeated again in a month, and then after that, it seems to have a much longer duration of effect, and other times it'll last longer than that. I don't have any uh, experience with it out beyond a year. Great. Okay. Any uh, follow-up questions, Ingrid? Nope. Thank you very much. Thank you. so. Uh, thank you for calling. Go ahead, Dr. Good. No, I was just thanking her. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Bo, let's go to our next caller, please. Dr. Shute, one more question. And you can take that now from Heather Woodbeck, uh, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Go ahead, Heather. Hi. Oh, hi. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Good, for putting forth this really important um issue, um, particularly in a, in a journal as prestigious as a journal of the American Medical Association. My job is working with long-term care homes to help them improve continence in um, residents in the long-term care. I mean, uh, work out of Thunder Bay, Ontario, in Canada. And um, one, some of the things that we found, and I just wanted to explore this a little bit more with you, is that most of the residents or people who are coming into the homes um, have not had any kind of assessment whatsoever of their incontinence. They've um, kind of uh, bought into the advertising that everybody and, and that everybody's going to need products. And um, most of them, um, they're just in in these diapers. We call them. Right. Um, and, sorry. As I said, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and so I just wondered. Um, is that something that we should be recommending routinely that they get an assessment with, with a physician first, um, even before we try to address it? What we've been quite successful at doing is prompt avoiding or timed avoiding, and you know we've had a couple of the long-term care homes um, using the quality improvement methodology that IHI um, supports um, actually get 75% of their residents at least daytime continent using the prompt avoiding approach. But I just really wondered about the assessment because it just doesn't seem to get done. I think your point is very well taken, uh, that sometimes incontinence is ignored in all of the other things that are going on. And I think a baseline assessment in a nursing home patient is very important. Uh, definitely a history with a, a previous caregiver to find out how often it was and whether there's been any kind of change lately. Uh, and then a physical exam to make sure that they don't have extreme prolapse. Uh, or skin irritation, and I'm sure that usually gets done. A skin assessment is part of most every nursing home admission. And then uh, a urinalysis. And again, this is the group of patients that a lot of times have the asymptomatic bacteria. So I balance the results of the urinalysis with the caregiver history. If they've had stable incontinence for a year, I'm much more likely to think that that's asymptomatic bacteria, where if their incontinence has gotten worse, then I'm much more likely to treat the UTI and see if they improve and document that carefully, whether they did or didn't, so I can separate out the asymptomatic bacteria from the cystitis group. I'm very uh, pleased to hear about your success with prompted voiding because it's a very effective technique for nursing home patients and for home-bound patients. So, oh, so, yeah. so, so, so Dr. Good, I want to actually follow up a little bit on Heather's question. She specifically asked whether they need referral to an MD for assessment. Um, as I was listening to your recommendation, I was wondering, it sounds like something that could be done either on a, on a protocolized basis at a nursing home 
or just on an as-needed basis by an RN on site. So do you think it would be reasonable to try to have that as part of routine care in a home? Or do you think that's something that really needs referred to a physician or an advanced practice nurse? I would think if you had an advanced practice nurse, that might be the best way to do it, but certainly not the only way. It would seem to me that a protocol uh, done by RNs could easily be implemented, and then patients just referred if needed. Yeah, because uh, as I think of sort of the system we have both in the U.S. and in Canada, um, we, we have a whole lot of folks who fall in this condition, and um, it seems probably unrealistic to get them all assessed by physicians. So if that could be done as part of even an intake protocol, uh, that might be a wonderful way to do that. Um, Heather, can I follow up with you? you? You made a very interesting comment that you used some of the IHI improvement methodologies um, around your incontinence um, care. Can you be a little bit more specific about what your intervention was and, and what sort of improvement tools you used? Um, well, I'm leading this initiative called um, Improving Continent Care Collaborative. So we actually bring together long-term care homes from across the province of Ontario. And so different ones, they use the, the plan, do, study, act cycles, and the, you know, make it, they all make a very clear aim, and they submit them to us. And then they um, sort of start eating the elephant, we call it, at wherever they, they think is the most important. So some of them start with um, urinary tract infections, dealing with that. Uh, most of them um, have started with prompted voiding and seeing what they can do to reduce the incontinence in their long-term care residents. So we, we, in those ones that have gone with prompted voiding, we ask them to pick um, one or two residents to start, and they do a voiding record for at least three days, and some of them, like, they don't, don't necessarily do a 24-hour. They might do just a daytime voiding record. They might have to do a five- or a seven-day in order to get three days' worth of good data. And then they go from there, um, trying out, um, you know, prompted voiding. Um, some of them have come up with pretty novel ways of ensuring that the residents go at the time or are toileted, offered toileting at the time that um, they require. So, for instance, uh, one home that they took they on their worksheets, um, and those are the, the sheets that all the staff get, they actually put the times to to be asking about prompted voiding. And that home was very successful in terms of getting um, most of their residents. Like That's the one that got 75% of their residents' um, continent, at least daytime continent. So we help, my job is helping, you know, facilitating sessions and helping to bring together all the really good ideas that the, the people, the homes working on the front line of it, so to speak, are, are using. And, well, and working out. Well, Heather, that's wonderful. So, so what Heather's referring to is the IHI collaborative or breakthrough series method, which is a learning method that involves different organizations working towards a similar aim. And, and part of the wisdom of that is, is both the, the sharing of successes amongst organizations and the use of small uh, tests of changes. And Heather, the changes I heard you describing were really in how your staff works with patients. Um, to, to find efficient yet effective ways to prompt voiding. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. And it, we, we've sort of tweaked the breakthrough methodology slightly in that we, um, when we, ha we have day-long sessions, we use video conferencing because Ontario is very fortunate the government has invested heavily in that technology. So we, we bring together people virtually and we almost always include a continence expert. So somebody like Dr. Good 
or um, we often use nurse practitioners or advanced or nurses with special training and incontinence. And so we get we try to both give them the quality improvement methodology, but we give them clinical information. So we find that's real, the most effective when we use sort of give both do both. And then we also provide opportunities for them to share, and that's really really important because it's. You know, it's the people on the front lines or the point-of-care staff that really, really understand the challenges um, in trying to regain continence or or even maintain it in, you know, in these big institutions. Wonderful, Heather. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that and thank you for that account. And um, uh, perhaps one of your institutions will try an RN-based uh, <laughs> intake assessment in, as a future uh, test of change. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Anything else to say about that, Dr. Good? No, I, it's a wonderful uh, program. I'm not as familiar with IHI's methodology, but the way she described it working, it just seemed so common sense, and their success just speaks for itself. Yeah, that's one wonderful example. So that's great. Well, let's go back to our next caller. Bo, can you please introduce our next caller? Yes, um, it's Colleen O'Brien at Queensway Carlton Hospital. It's a community hospital in Ottawa, and I'm a clinical nurse specialist in geriatrics. And I've become aware, Dr. Good, uh, in the last little while of using uh, vaginal cones for pelvic floor exercises. And I'm wanting to know, have you used these in your practice, and how successful are they? There is one small article about the success of vaginal cones, and what they are for everyone who's listening is a usually it's a container of several, maybe five cones, and each one's progressively a little heavier. And you insert the cone like a tampon and have the patient walk around trying to hold it in. And uh, they, there have been some studies showing that it's successful, but none of them showing uh, any improved success over basic pelvic floor muscle exercises that are uninstrumented. So in my clinical practice, I don't use the cones. I prefer to teach the patients uh, just where their muscles are, how to squeeze them, and put them on an exercise program like we discussed earlier. Uh, one of the reasons for that is if you, uh, especially the physical therapist on the line could uh, feel free to call in and comment on this, but to try to build muscle strength, to have the muscles squeeze for a certain amount of time and then relax for a certain amount of time is usually thought to be better to build muscle strength than having them tonically try to contract and hold something in. So it just made more sense to me uh, based yeah, on... Perfect muscle physiology. But there are some articles showing that it does work. Yeah, perfect, because I, I, I don't think they have the relaxation component built into those cones. Definitely not. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Great, and thank you for your call. Uh, Bo, next uh, questioner, please. Take our question now from Michelle Decker with Littleton Region, uh, Regional Hospital. Hi. Michelle, go ahead and can you tell us where you're from? Because I believe all the callers so far have been from Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Um, my name is Michelle, and I'm from New Hampshire. I'm a ah, great. Okay, go ahead, please. Um, I just wanted to say that I've had great success in pelvic floor muscle rehab. Um, I had one woman who was in her 70s or 80s come in with previously two pelvic, floor, pelvic sling surgeries looking for a third with four treatments. Um, he was satisfied and didn't wasn't looking forward to another surgery. So that was great success on my part and her part. That is 
said. Wonderful. So, so, so a testimonial to the effectiveness of pelvic floor exercises. I've also had great, great success. I have a computer-based visual biofeedback program that has been helpful for patients. First visit, I teach them pelvic uh, floor muscle ex exercises, um, and I insert my finger vaginally for them to squeeze. Next, I have them look at the computer screen, what they're actually doing for relaxation and contraction ability. That's also been great success. Um, core stabilization is also a component in my program. Wonderful. Dr. Good, any, any uh, reflections or comments? No, I think the uh, comments were very helpful because uh, pelvic floor muscle exercises and bladder control strategies are very helpful in people who have failed surgery, and they're usually not very eager to, eager to have another surgery, and they're very pleased that they can be managed with something a lot less a lot more conservative. Uh, I would like to comment a little bit on biofeedback. It's a very, very helpful technology to use, particularly for women who have extremely weak muscles or can't find their muscles at all on physical exam. We did do a controlled trial uh, testing biofeedback against pelvic floor muscle exercises taught on physical exam by a nurse practitioner. So the nurse practitioner either used the biofeedback to teach it or she uh, taught on physical exam. And the results were the same in this group of unselected patients with uh, urge incontinence. So I don't think biofeedback is necessary for every patient, but it can be extremely helpful in those patients that I was talking about with the very weak muscles or unable to find their muscles at first. Great. And, and Michelle, I miss what kind of practitioner are you? Are you a nurse or a physical therapist? I'm sorry, we didn't hear that. Right. Physical therapist. Got it. Okay. So, and then those are some of the some of the tools you use in your work. I just want to say thank you, Dr. Good, for doing this. This is great for um, physicians to have the frontline uh, service to the patients and then refer as needed and Physical therapy is not often thought of with people in the community, and it's a great resource. Um, so getting the education out to patients is the first line, and then referring would be a great help for the physical therapy field. Yeah, I, I endorse that entirely. It would be really, really helpful if the Physical Therapy Association could post a list of the therapists that are certified in, in women's health on their website <laughs> so we could find you all. I think they do, but it's only APTA members. Yeah, that's the problem. Great. Well, good, good, good suggestion. Maybe you can uh, take that forward, uh, Michelle, to your uh, association. Okay. Great. Thanks. Hey, then thank you so much for calling. Uh, Bo, do we have any other questions at this time? One more question, Dr. Shute. We'll take a follow-up question now from Ingrid. Great. Go ahead, please, Ingrid. Hi, I'm Ingrid. I'm the spoke earlier, I'm a physical therapist as well, and I just wanted to comment on the cones. You were saying maybe a physical therapist could comment, um, and I know from our point of view in terms of doing pelvic floor exercises and training with cones, uh, it's just that it's not a very functional way of, of training the pelvic floor. You don't need the kind of muscle strength that needs to be able to sustain up that kind of weight. And so, yes, we also tend not to use them uh, we prefer to train the people to do pelvic floor exercises while they're squatting, while they're lifting, while they're carrying, so rather include them in functional activities than just using the weights and trying to hold the weights in. Um, so I, I wanted to give that comment. And lastly, I just wanted to say in terms of finding a certified physical therapist, if you do go on the American Physical Therapy Association site, 
There's a link to women's health, and there is a list of CAP certified, which is the what APTA um, uh, recognizes that's their certification course uh, in terms of find, finding qualified physical therapists in your area. The last time I tried that, it was only accessible to members, so I wasn't able to get on there myself, you know, as a physician trying to find a physical therapist to refer to. I am I am not a member, and I know when last I checked, I was able to get through there. It took it took a few links and a few clicks, but but I was able to get that information. Oh, great! I'm going to try a little harder now. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah, that's great information, Ingrid. Thank you again for uh, calling back and um, the information on how to navigate that. And it sounds like there's a pretty good consensus, at least amongst the two of you, about the the the, the need to use cones. So. That's great. Um, we do have time for one last question. Any any callers at this time, Bo? Uh, Dr. Shute, nothing further at this time, sir. Great. Well, l let me close with one one more question for you, Dr. Good, and and that is sort of the fl the flip side of the question about um, the 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 cholinesterase inhibitor drugs and and moving to actually anticholinergics. Um, you know, there's many patients who come to me already on an anticholinergic drug for incontinence or who are looking for a medication to help them. And I'm often challenged because it's very often the same group in which anticholinergic drugs are relatively contraindicated. Um, and in fact, I get prompts sometimes from, from health plans or pharmacy benefit managers who say I should be stopping these drugs. Can you give us any advice on how we how we navigate that, that tricky territory? That's a very good question, and it's, it's very tricky. Uh, I get more problems trying to pick a drug that may not penetrate the blood-brain barrier as much, thinking of a drug maybe like uh, trospium, which due to its large charge size may not uh, penetrate the blood-brain barrier, where the insurance company says, no, I have to use generic oxybutyne and I can't use that drug. <laughs> so I get it more the other way around rather than ask, having them ask me to discontinue the medications. Uh, I do find that if people come in on one drug and it's not working for them, that introducing them to behavioral therapy and getting a little better control and then trying to taper them off that drug can work very well. And then if they worsen when they come off the drug, maybe they didn't realize it was helping, then you could start a different drug uh, and see if they have a better response to that one, but in conjunction with the behavioral therapy. Wonderful. Uh, that, that's a great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Well, at this time, uh, that's all the time we have for questions, and um, this has been a great discussion, uh, both of the issues brought up by Dr. Good, and I want to particularly thank all of our uh, callers uh, for both some excellent questions and, and sharing uh, their experiences and how to manage this condition. Uh, before we close, I want to give Dr. Good one more chance to sort of offer any either summarizing thoughts or closing comments. I guess I'll finish with my take-home points, uh, that urinary incontinence is very common and should be in the review of systems for all older women, including those in the nursing home, and <laughs> that initial behavioral therapy with pelvic floor muscle exercises and uh, bladder control strategies and caffeine avoidance is easy to do and can be implemented in a primary care practice. And I'd like to add to that that referrals out to people with more expertise, such as our physical therapy colleagues or nurse practitioners or in uh, Canada continence managers, can be very, very helpful to patients if you're too busy to really do detailed treatment in your own practice. And then to think about the modifiable contributing factors, uh, such as constipation, urinary tract infections, mobility impairment, 
and caffeine before you reach for the prescription and prescribe one of the anti-muscarinic drugs. Great. Thank you, Dr. Good. Uh, and in closing, I'd like to remind all of our callers that Author in the Room is a monthly pr- program that takes place the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on September 15th, and our featured author will be uh, Dr. Matthew K. Winia, again discussing his recent article in JAMA on the role of professionalism and self-regulation in detection of impaired or incompetent uh, practitioners. Again, uh, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, an interactive conference call designed to accelerate translation of research into practice. Thanks again to all of you for being part of the call, for your contributions, and have a good day.